curious about human performance, what it takes to become a superman. Is it drugs? Is it genetic manipulation? Um, or is it learning how to get in the flow state the way athletes do, performers do, speakers, authors, all those? Uh, maybe it's something else. Maybe the future is coming faster than you think. However, once you get into those amazing states, how do you how do you stay there? Or at least how do you get back there? I'm curious about all these things, and I'm also curious about what the hell this has to do with Chihuahuas, but we'll find out. I'm your host, Doug Barron. And to find out more about hiring me as a speaker or strategist for your organization, you can go to fullmontyleadership.com forward slash consulting or fullmontyleadership.com forward slash speaking. This episode is brought to you by the awesome music project, connecting music, science, and stories together to enhance mental health. Find out more about the Awesome Music Project and the AMP Foundation at theawesomemusicproject.com. All right, let's chomp down on this episode. My guest is Stephen Kotler. Stephen Kotler is a New York Times bestselling author and award-winning journalist and the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. Mm, we're going to talk about that. He is one of the world's leading experts on human performance. He's the author of 11 books, including The Future is Faster Than You Think, Stealing Fire, uh, Bold, <laughs> Abundance, The Rise of Superman. I mean, it just goes on and on. His work has been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes, uh, been translated into 40 languages, and appears in over 100 publications, including the New York Times Magazine, Atlantic Monthly, Time, Wired, and Forbes. He's also the co-founder of Rancho de Chihuahua Dog Sanctuary, and he is one of the few folks who's been invited back because he's been a guest on the Leadership and Loyalty podcast multiple times. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome the man who is in the flow as he tangles in cyberspace, Mr. Stephen Cutler! It's a frightening introduction, Dove. It's really, it's, it's frightening. I don't know what else to say to that. <laughs> well, if I, if I can throw you off, that's pretty good going. So let, let's start on the, the less obvious. Um, what, <laughs> you're famous for, all the, for many things, of, of course, being an incredible writer and an incredible researcher and all those things. Um, but let's talk about the, uh, being the co-founder of the Rancho de Chihuahua Dog Sanctuary. How did that happen? Because that seems a little off base. It's so funny. Um, uh, yes. By the way, yes, it seems off base. And the reason I know this is um, because people have spent my entire career telling me, wow, this is off base. You did all this work on the relationship between humans and animals. And to me, what's so funny is um, it's really foundational, but we'll get there. I've been a longtime animal geek since I was a little kid, loved mm -hmm. animals. Um, and when I became a journalist, Along my career, I spent, I would go really far out of my way to like hang out with scientists or who were hanging out with animals. And um, certainly if you're interested in peak performance, by the way, the unsung hero, the heroes of the world are wildlife biologists, toughest men and women you'll ever meet on the planet, mm -hmm. going into incredibly remote locations by themselves to ask ridiculous questions that nobody else is asking and, um, and just be arduous beyond measure. But uh, Besides the point, I would, I would do this to hang out with animals. And uh, when I met my wife and she was doing dog rescue, 
sort of like a light bulb went off. I was like, wait a minute, you mean I can have this relationship with animals and do this work in the comfort of my own home kind of thing. Um, so it came from there. But what, what I find is really interesting is uh, in the work that I do, primarily, you know, studying the neurobiology of flow and peak performance, mm -hmm. there are a bunch of different uh, it's a really exciting time. And one of the reasons it's a really exciting time is because there are a whole bunch of different veins of science that are coming together for the very first time. Right. So a couple of those veins, one of them is an ethology, which is the study of animal behavior, which right. led us directly into uh, the work of the discovery that animals, all mammals have seven basic emotional pathways. This was work done by a brilliant uh, neuroscientist named Yak Poncept at the University of Washington, among other people. But he did the, a lot of the foundational work, named sort of the seven emotional systems that run all through humans. And flow is tied direct. These are the, the affective neuroscience is, is what they call the study of emotion, right? Sure. Affective neuroscience runs straight through the study of flow. So if I have advantages in the, in the work that I do over some of other researchers. One of them is that I've got this deep animal background, which both gives me evolutionary theory and evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology and ethology. And they all, they come together. Flow, in fact, there are a number of different evolutionary theories on where the state comes from. One of them, and they're probably, by the way, all true, um, it, I don't think it's going to be one way. thing, yeah. right? But one of them, and I wrote about this in uh, a book of mine called uh, A Small Furry Prayer, is that we co-evolved with dogs um, for a very long time, for 40,000 years, humans and dogs co-evolved together. And part of that involved pack hunting. We, mm. we could go out and pack hunt with wolves together, take out much larger prey, feed more our families, live longer, et cetera, et cetera. That's an evolutionary driver. But if you've ever run in the wild, I, with, I have a dog sanctuary, so I get to run in the wild in the backcountry and hike with my dogs all the time. Mm -hmm. you, dogs are klutzy, like you trip all over each other, right? And in days of old, before there were antibiotics and doctors and hospitals, you couldn't, like, you couldn't literally do that, like falling down in the trail, you could die. You could cut yourself, get gangrene, it was all over. So you need really, really, really good group coordination and timing, especially in high pressure situations like taking down a woolly mammoth or whatever. Um, my point is because pattern recognition goes up, group flow, which you can cross as species lines, oh. you can get into group flow with dogs, and it's a perfect, perfect, it's perfect for pack hunting, and it gives you the same nonverbal communication the Navy SEALs use group flow for that I talk about in stealing fire. It's the same thing you get with dogs. In fact, uh, the godfather of flow psychology is me high, chick sent me high. And the very first conversation I had with him involved dogs. I was getting into flow while running with my dogs. And I went, well, this isn't possible. Like what's going on? And I called Mike and I said, hey, is this even possible? And he said, yes, I actually get into flow with my dogs all the time. And he started explaining that it crosses species lines and it's conserved. And there's a lot of, there's not a lot, but there's a bit of work that's been done on flow and evolution. And we have actually have some answers, but anyways, so it's not as tangential as it may seem, but mm -hmm. fundamentally I'm an animal geek. Um, all the environmental work I do is also, I'm really much on the side of, I love the underdog and the ultimate underdog in this world are plants, animals, and ecosystems. So I'm always going to fight for plants, animals. Well, the ultimate underdog is uh, some disabled chihuahua 
because, because uh, what people don't know is last time we, we actually spoke together um, on, on leadership and loyalty, all of a sudden, uh, and it, back in those days, we were still using Skype. So the screen you and I could see is not the screen that ended up in front of people, but on the screen you and I could see, your little chihuahua walks up with his wonky leg and takes a whittle on the floor behind you. <laughs> and it was on camera for us, but it didn't show up in the thing. Wait, wait, that sounds like my household. That happens. <laughs> like, that uh, we we, we do hospice leg and away you go. We do hospice care and special needs care. That's you what know. I said about being the literal underdog. Yeah. I well I also say that like, you know, um one of the one of the great things about my particular life is is it's like enforced humility because every day the first thing I do is either step in dog shit or clean up dog shit. Yeah. How my dog day starts every day. So, you know, it's humbling. Yeah. So it gets you off your pedestal a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> How do you get off your pedestal? Well, I usually start with some dog shit between my toes. Yeah. That's a good place to start. So let me ask you, let me ask you, Stephen. Uh, one of the things I like to start the show with is to ask, what are you presently most curious about? Because I believe this is my, this is my theory for this entire show. Um, I believe that the cure for life as it is, uh, for all the woes in the world, is actually curiosity. I used to think it was love. And what I realized is love, is, um, not that curiosity isn't, but it's extremely subjective. And it's tied to getting. It's tied to um, wanting something without being open. So I want it, but I don't necessarily want to be open while I get it. Well, curiosity requires us to be open while wanting something because it is our nature to want. And so this, this, for me, this thing has driven me my entire life and I didn't recognize what it was, which I mean, I, I did, but not pinned it, which is curiosity that this deep curiosity is what creates everything I've seen in evolution, everything I've seen in science, everything I've seen in, in neurosciences and all the things that I've studied around psychology and, and even the body and how the body works is all based in, can you stay curious? Because the minute you lose your curiosity, we become, I, I think the three most dangerous words in the world are, I know that because I now stopped learning. I've now blocked it out. So I'm interested in how you feel about what I just said and what you're presently curious about. Um, where do you want me You're to start? You're allowed to disagree too. Oh, no. I, so, um, I believe that, uh, curiosity is, uh, is literally quite literally the, uh, very first. So if you're interested in peak performance of at any level, mm -hmm. you have to, because the, because peak performance is by definition, a very long road, you need as much motivation as possible. And when uh, psychologists talk about motivation, they talk about uh, three things. They talk about the motivation triad, which is drive, grit, and goals, okay? Mm -hmm. Drive is a catch-all for at least five, if not more, of our most potent intrinsic motivators. Mm -hmm. And that stack, and, and literally one becomes the next in a very clean line because we're, we're, we're sort of built evolutionarily wise to follow this curiosity becomes passion passion becomes purpose purpose leads us to autonomy and autonomy leads us to mastery and that's sort of 
you can start with autonomy or you can start with, I, I like to start with curiosity because um, you don't, without curiosity, you don't even know what to spend your, your autonomous behavior on, right? Exactly. Like, right. So you got to, to me, it all starts with curiosity. And here's the, um, this is the coolest thing. Here's another thing that comes out of ethology. Okay. The study of animal behavior oh. that you're going to love. So it turns out curiosity and anxiety neurobiologically are the exact same signal. They're both built out of the neurochemical norepinephrine. Right. Right. So the interesting thing is most mammals cannot feel both at once. So in cows, for example, they literally, they're either anxious or they're curious, but not both at once. Humans are a little more complicated. We can feel both at once, but not very well. And as a result, you can use curiosity consistently to diffuse anxiety because the brain turns one into the other. It's hard to feel both at the same time. Um, so starting with curiosity, not only gets you, you're naturally intrinsically motivated, whenever you're intrinsically motivated, you get focus for free, which is awesome because we spend a lot of energy trying to focus. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, if you're curious at the front end of a new endeavor, new endeavors usually scare us and that dials down the fear of new endeavors. So there's a really nice performance stack that starts with curiosity. And obviously anything that drives focus, like curiosity, helps drive flow in the end because flow always follows focus. That for so, me is that for me right there is is a really fascinating thing because and I and I want to push back on it, not because it's not true, but because I want to hear where we go with this, which is you and I both are aware that we are living in a time where Anxiety is almost epidemic. I mean, people, there's, I hear more people anxious than ever. I know for myself, um, and maybe it's age or whatever it is, and maybe it's a trauma that I had in 2015 when my house burnt down. But I, since then, I have a level of anxiety that I never knew before. Um, but I've remained curious and actually probably become even more curious. Uh, but I still have to deal with anxiety on a daily basis. And I see more and more and more people who seem to be anxious about something. So it's interesting to me that it seems like from what you're saying that curiosity is the cure for this anxiety. And yet I'm this case, and that's why I'm asking you, where I have fierce curiosity, but also have to deal with anxiety every single day. I think that, I mean, you know, I, I think that's, Part and parcel to being human, first of all. Um, Anxiety. Of, right, yeah, of course. Um, yeah. It's hard here, and it's hard for everyone. Like, it just, mm -hmm. I haven't met an exception to that particular rule. Um, and, you know, I, I, I remember, and I, I tell this story in a, in, a, in a book that I have coming out next year, but um, the first time I met Laird Hamilton, and um, Laird at the time at the time, man, anxiety was the most, like fear was the most common emotion in my life. I could never remember not being afraid. And I hated myself for being afraid. I felt like a coward and a failure, mm. right? And it wasn't what men didn't feel, right? Like all that stuff, I had all that in my head. And I met Laird at the end at the time, this was in the, in the 90s. He had just, he was surfing Jaws. Nobody else was. He was pretty much the, you know, widely acknowledged toughest dude on the planet. Maybe he wasn't, maybe there were Navy SEALs or special tech ops, whatever, but widely acknowledged toughest dude on the planet. And I remember talking to Laird about this and he said, you know, 
He said, that's me too. If you're interested in, in big challenges, fear is gonna be the most constant emotion in your life and it's what you do with it that makes all the difference. And another thing about fear that is so wonderful that most people don't get is peak performers will go in the direction that scares the most. You asked me early on before we were off camera, you said, Stephen, why did you write three books the past year? Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons was I didn't think it was possible. It scared the hell out of me. And when you're scared, if you go in the direction that scares you, you get focused for free. That's a big deal. Day in and day out, right? All your calories are going to focus or a great deal of them. So if you can get focused for free, it's a big deal over the long term. So peak performers go right at that anxiety and they use their curiosity to steer through it, right? And, but I don't think, you know, maybe it goes away at some, at some point, but not, not for long. And like, I think that's a blessing. You know what I mean? I, I like that. I like the extra motivation. Personally. I like the extra motivation, but I think that it must be a, must have a tipping point because we know that if people get, you know, fight, flight, fear, freeze, right? So, you know, that we know that for some people that fear will literally stop them. Sometimes the anxiety is so overwhelming, you can't think. You can't do anything apart from obsess around the thought. So it's a really interesting tipping point around the focus because the focus either goes to the anxiety or to the thing you're overcoming. I and think that might be the distinction. Yeah, I, and, I, and, and I think there's a, lot of, there's a lot of really strong psychology. You know, if you look at uh, positives, what I call the positive psychology basics, um, which would be a, a daily gratitude practice, a daily mindfulness practice, regular exercise, regular you know, sleep hygiene, nutrition, a couple of, uh, some social support, a couple right. other things, right? What are all those things about? All of them are very potent anti-anxiety medications. Absolutely. Above everything else, right? That's, the, those, that's what those things are. And I think anxiety is a factor of life and I think it's definitely a fact of peak performance. And that's why, you know, the positive, you can't have a high flow lifestyle, a peak performance lifestyle of any kind, if you don't have those positive psychology basics in place, at least some of them, because for the very reason you're talking about, you can't control the anxiety. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me that, that there's so much that is that double-edged sword, because um, I used to talk a lot about uh, fear and excitement. And I used to say that fear and excitement, and, and I'd done some research on it way back, maybe 15 years ago about fear and excitement being one molecule in difference, right? And that you can change that molecule by, by, by focus, right? But fear and excitement are so damn close. And the example is people go on to roller coasters. <laughs> like why, <laughs> why would you go on a roller coaster if it makes you fearful? I mean, at a logical level, it's like, that doesn't make any sense. And yet people line up to go on talking to each other about how terrified they're going to be because they get to survive it. They get to experience it. So it's, it's, it's very interesting to me, this, this, I'm always fascinated by that, the pull to a polar and understanding that it's always in the middle, you know, the, as the Buddhists say, it's always the middle path, but there's this, the psychology of human beings is this polarity piece. It's a fascinating research. It is cool research. It is. So you're now working, you know, like you said, you know, I was going to go there. You, you've, you've done three books this year um, and a fourth one been released, which is 
yeah, you know, bordering on the insane. But you know, we, we like to live there. Uh, <laughs> I think you might be the mayor of that town, but we'll find out. <laughs> and your new book is The Future is Faster Than You Think. Is that when's that one coming out? That comes out January twenty eighth. January twenty eighth, twenty twenty. It's a it's another book I wrote with Peter Diamandis. So mm -hmm. we wrote Abundance together. We wrote Bold together, and this is the third book in what we're calling the uh, Exponential Mindset Trilogy. Uh, and really exciting, uh, just a mind blowing, mind blowing book, I think. So tell, tell us a little bit about why the future is faster than we think. So in abundance, yeah. right, it's, it's worth kind of, it's, it's easier to do this in terms of a, a quick trilogy, I'll do it quickly. Sure. Abundance is a book about how there are 10 or 12 different individual technologies, robotics, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, computers, nanotechnology, biotechnology, et cetera, that are all accelerating on along exponential growth curves, right? That's like Moore's law. They're doubling in power and having a price or staying up for the same price on a regular basis, right? And these are the most potent technologies the world has ever seen. And in abundance, we talk about the fact that because these technologies are user-friendly, we can now, individuals and small teams can harness these technologies to build world-changing companies and tackle grand global challenges, right? That was abundance. Bold was, how do you do this, right? There was such an outcry from entrepreneurs after abundance, wanting sure. to know, okay, this is great, this is awesome, how do we do this, right? And um, the, the, the Future is Faster Than You Think is the third book, and what, what is happening now is these formerly independent lines of exponential technology are starting to converge. So they're overlapping, they're stacking on top of each other, they're doubling in power, you're getting a whole is much bigger than the sum of its parts. And these parts are the most world-changing technologies we've ever seen. So like the classic simple example that everybody's heard about is, we know artificial intelligence is powerful. We know robotics are powerful, but you put them together and suddenly 40% of the workforce, according to re research out of Oxford, I don't totally agree with this, but you know, could be looking at worker yep. retraining over the next 10 years, right? So on top of these converging technologies, we're seeing a heap seven secondary forces that are sort of after effects of this technological acceleration that is itself accelerating our acceleration. All this is a fancy way of saying, if you agree with Ray Kurzweil, who has very rarely been wrong, Ray pointed out that over the next 81 years, by the end of the 21st century, we are going to go, we are going to experience 20,000 years worth of technological change. It means we're going to go birth of the industrial revolution to, excuse me, birth of agriculture to the industrial revolution twice over the next 81 years. What it means over the next decade is about 100 years of technological change. So think back to the world in 1919, 1920, yeah. and go to today and say, okay, we're gonna go through that in the next 10 years. Now, so what we do in the future is faster than you think is this, is, this information is, depending on where you sit, either phenomenal news or terrifying news, right? Yes. If you're an entrepreneur, if you are a, an agile leader of business, more wealth is going to be created in the next 10 years than it has in the previous 100. Um, and so what we do is we provide a roadmap. We literally look at the 12 largest industries on the planet, the 12 biggest businesses on the planet. We go industry by industry and saying, this is what's coming in the next 10 years, right? So here's what's coming in real estate. Here's what's coming in finance. Here's education. Here's the environment. Here's blah, 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 straight through. Um, 
for established businesses, this is terrifying, right? Established businesses are built to last as the saying goes, right? They're created for safety and stability, security, yep. and um, they are not designed for nimble and agile and able to pivot and turn on a dime and blah. And that's exactly what's coming. And it's super, super interesting. It means the next 10 years are going to be truly mind blowing. And, and it's funny, I don't think I've ever said a book of mine is mind blowing before. And what I mean by that is when I was writing it, mm -hmm. when my editor who I've worked with forever, when my wife, who I've obviously I've been married to through all these books, like people who really know this stuff, who really know this information or are really close to me, Peter, know this work. They read the book. You see it all stacked together. And it's, you just cannot believe what's actually coming in the next 10 years. It's, it's truly, it's truly amazing. And so it's the book's a roadmap, right? If you want to, take advantage of this, the opportunity that's coming your way, the book is a roadmap. And if you don't want to get your ass kicked along the way, the book is a roadmap. And if you're really just curious about what the hell tomorrow will look like, the book is a roadmap. If you don't like technology, the book is probably not your roadmap, <laughs> you know. So, so give us, give us, give us a, a taster. Let, let okay, us all right, so let me, let me, the book opens, and this is, it opens here for a reason, because I think it's so crazy. Um, we open the book at Uber Elevate, which is their ride-sharing giant's second annual flying car conference. Uber is rolling out flying cars by test, test projects in LA, Dubai, Dallas, by 2023 to 2025, rolling out the full service afterwards. There are, when we were writing the book, there were 25 different major companies all with flying cars already. They have flying cars. The cars are here. The second conference was about the path to scale. It's how hold on, we- Hold on, whoa, let's, let's talk. What do you mean they're here already? Oh yeah, they're here. There are Larry Page of, of, of Google Alphabet fame has invested in three different flying car companies. I've ridden in a flying taxi in Dubai that's essentially an oversized quadcopter drone scaled up. The this is what Convergence has done. So flying cars, this sci-fi technology forever, Ever. Like yeah. literally the story of flying cars, we do this in the book, it dates back to the fourth century AD or BC to this ancient Hindu text that talks about flying chariots. Like we were dreaming about this shit for thousands of years. Yeah, even, even the stories of Solomon talk about the flying cars. They're here. And they're here because four or five of these technologies converged. And I can break it down if you're super curious, but like you basically have a giant convergent technology the cars are here. People are, and I'm, by the way, to qualify as an Uber ready flying car, just to give you an idea of what's possible, you got to move, you got to travel at 150 miles an hour, carry four passengers and be able to carry do 300 miles in a single trip. So that's basically San Diego to San Francisco in two hours in a car, wow. flying car, right? So that's just exhibit A. We're also going to see in the next 10 years, autonomous cars, autonomous taxis, yes, the yeah. Hyperloop, right? So high speed trains. Elon Musk is now promising that his rockets, the same rockets he's been launching that are going to take us to Mars can do interplanet, on planetary travel. So it's like London to Dubai in 20 minutes kind of thing. Um, nice. New York to Shanghai for lunch. Um, <laughs> and all this stuff. That's some Chinese food, sure. 
But here's where it gets really crazy because people talk about this as, oh my God, this crazy wild ass future and all that's true. But the level of disruption gets really peculiar. Think about really simple things. How big is the local dating pool? If you're single and you live in Las Vegas right now, you get to date men or women in Las Vegas. But True. if the Hyperloop connects Las Vegas to Los Angeles in 20 minutes, that's like living in Brooklyn and dating somebody in Manhattan, True. right? The dating pool just got gargantuan. The local mm -hmm. school district just got gargantuan, right? Mm -hmm. All these things that we really take for granted, fabric of life kind of stuff hasn't changed in forever, right? Suddenly it's going to really start to shift in ways that, that we can't imagine. And that's what's interesting about convergence. And then I'll, I'll say this thing and then I'll shut up and you can ask another question. But <laughs> what we saw in abundance, for example, with individual exponentials is they tend to disrupt products and services. Every now and again, you get a technology like 3D printing that can disrupt an entire market, like the entire manufacturing sector can be disrupted by 3D printing, but that's fairly rare. But when you get converging exponentials, that's not rare at all. Disrupted markets are the rule. And then you start seeing disruptions to things like institutions. So we're seeing the educational institution being totally disrupted by converging exponentials. We all know that the school of tomorrow is going to be in virtual reality, right? And ever, it's probably going to have brain-computer interfaces woven in, right? It's this huge convergence of technology. It's happening already. And we all know that, right? So the education institution, I'll give you another one that we talk about in our book that's pretty funny, but it's not so funny, is the institution of marriage. Divorce rates globally are 50% right now. Mm -hmm. And one of the main reasons is we're living so goddamn long, right? Marriage is this institution that was designed when we had 25, 30-year lifespans. You got married at, at like 13, 14, 15. You had kids and you died in your mid to the late 20s, right? We designed it to last. It was a system built for a 20-year lifespan around our biology. Now, my parents just celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary, right? And over the next century, life extension, right? In the 20th century, we essentially doubled the human lifespan plus some, right? We went from like 35 years to 70. Now it's 84. I think it's 84 for men and 85 for women, I think is what it is. But we, you know, we're expecting over the next decade to add another decade to that, right? So marriage is like 60, 70 year marriages. Are we sure? Like, are we really? Like maybe, but are we sure? <laughs> How long have you been married? 13 years. Okay. <laughs> so you're testing that every day. Every day, every yeah, day. Me too. I'm, I'm, I'm at 21 years and I'm still testing. Right. <laughs>